0: Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. Well, it was another big night on uh, Wall Street last night, 4.6% fall on the Nasdaq, the biggest for a number of years. So clearly we're in the middle of a correction now and obviously we don't know how far this will go, but it looks to be not over yet. And that's certainly the view of Julia Lee, Equities Analyst at Bell Direct, who we talked to first about what's going on on the markets. To check in on the economy, I've got Felicity Emmett, Co-Head of Australian Economics at ANZ, and she tells us what growth is going to do in Australia in 2019. And of course, it's also a big week in politics. So we've got Michael Packie, National Political Editor for Macquarie Media, on the latest dramas in Canberra, and just for something completely different, Steve Sammartino brings us up to date on uh, cryptocurrencies, and in particular, what stable coins are and what's going on with them and now to bring us up to date with what's going on on the markets and there is quite a lot here's Julia Lee equities analyst at Bell Direct Julia obviously a big night last night in New York and one thing that struck me was that the Nasdaq was finishing on its low it was sliding away towards the end of the day so it would seem that the correction has not finished yet what do you think
1: Usually
2: when we see markets finishing at the lows of the session, it does tend to be a sign that there's more to come, some more weakness to come. And the action in the US, most of it was in the last hour of trade. So it it does look like the market's ready to continue selling off, but we still have seen a pretty significant correction in the month of October. In fact, the NASDAQ at the moment is seeing the worst monthly performance since October 2008, so in 10 years. And we haven't seen a single day loss for this, uh, like this for the Nasdaq since 2001. But of course, the other major indices were sold off for the S&P 500, also down by 3.1%. And the S&P uh, 500 seeing its worst month since February 2009. So it does look like it's going to be a pretty ugly day here in Australia. I'm guessing there's not going to be a lot of shelter from the storm. Generally, in times like this, when you are looking for shelter from the volatility and the losses, they do tend to be in some of the defensive sectors, which tend to outperform, and certainly in the month of October on the Australian share market, we've seen the property sector outperforming as well as the telecom sector outperforming. Both of them offer a higher dividends, and dividend yields act as a buffer against bol- volatility because, of course, you get paid those dividends whether the market's going up or down. So I suspect we will see some of those defensive sectors outperforming, and it should be another Good time for gold to shine, so those gold miners should continue to
0: do well. Oh, you're such an optimist, Julia, looking at the looking on the good side. But there's, uh, I mean, looking at the Nasdaq last night it was, as you say, its biggest fall for years. And um, the Fang stocks, in fact, if you look at the Fang index, it's now down 20% from its peak in June. So that would suggest those Fangs are in a bear market.
2: Uh, there will be a few um, markets, I think, in a bear market. And I guess uh, the big market that's been in a bear market for a while is the Chinese stock market and the Shanghai Composite. And that's one of the market spheres at the moment uh, that's hitting the tech stocks quite hard. And that's Donald Trump's deep trade war with China, which in particular is hitting those technology stocks. But then in addition to that, you have rising U.S. Federal Reserve interest rates, you have faltering growth over in Europe, And then you have the U.S. midterm elections in a couple of weeks as well, just to throw in a bit of uncertainty for the market. So at the moment, I think the key is to have a look at it from different levels. So from an economic perspective, the theory is that we are seeing global growth rolling over, and that's being made worse with the uh, relations between U.S. and China. On a fundamental level, we're looking at earnings. And while earnings is looking very strong for the S&P 500 um, this quarter, and we're expecting to see around about 19.2% growth, which is absolutely amazing, there is fears that we are starting to see a slowdown in that growth. So uh, the quarter before, we saw earnings growth at 25%. Now we're seeing 19%. And once the, the effect of the tax cuts over in the US roll off, we could see even lower levels. And then, of course, from a technical perspective, you are seeing those momentum drivers having dried up, and you are seeing the market below the 200-day moving average, so looking at lower levels for that support. So, there are concerns at each level, I think stems from the first, the economic cycle globally, that we are seeing a rolling over into the next phase of the cycle, which is slowing growth.
0: Do you think that there are many investors leveraged, highly leveraged into this market, so that if there's a significant correction, there's some trouble?
2: Uh, I think that the market has changed a lot in the last 10 years. And one of the things that we have seen is the rise in the popularity of things like exchange-traded funds. Um, So it would be interesting to see uh, whether that adds to volatility, given that it's so easy to jump in and out of these instruments and they are highly liquid. And of course, when investors look for the exit points at the same time, it usually does cascade into uh, losses. So whether we do see that cascading effect. I guess here in Australia, though, we are seen as a defensive market because of our higher yields and more mature companies in the the top top 20. um, So our market shouldn't fall as much as we've seen in the US. So we've seen the NASDAQ down by 4.4%. We've seen the S&P 500 down 3.1% overnight. I'd be quite surprised if the Australian share market uh, fell more than 1.8%. So we'll probably see much milder losses compared to the US.
0: Well, in fact, our market didn't go up as much either. So I suppose uh, that's to be expected.
2: We're at low beta market, which means um, our market doesn't go up as much on the upside and it doesn't go down as much on the downside. So we are seen as more of a defensive player, more of a mature economy um, and not as many growth drivers as some of them. Um, and with our counterparts over in the US and in the emerging
0: market space. Great to talk to you, Julia. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Alan.
0: Let's hear from Felicity Emmett, the co head of Australian economics at ANZ Research. Well Felicity, there's obviously a lot of influences going on at the moment, both positive and negative. Where do you now sit in terms of your views about growth in 2019, and in particular the labour market?
3: Look, we're still quite positive. We're looking for growth of about 3% next year, which would be down from what our expectations this year of 3.2. So there's still quite a number of drivers going on. Housing's obviously not going to be as big a driver as it was in terms of construction. So that's likely to be a bit of a drag next year. But we've still got really strong public spending, both on the infrastructure side that we can all see every day in Sydney and Melbourne, and also on the consumption side with the rollout of the NDIS. And then there's private investment, which is also running quite strongly at the moment. Um, we've got mining investment actually looking a little bit better. Um, that certainly we're not expecting it to be a drag in 2019, but we've also got quite a significant pipeline of private investment. Um, so that is looking quite promising. The key uh, issue really is around the consumer and that's where we've for a long time seen the risks and that's why the labour market is going to be really important there because I think that's been uh, a really important factor helping to hold up consumer confidence and spending over the last little while.
0: Just before we get on to the labour market, Felicity, are you saying that you reckon the NDIS is a form of fiscal stimulus?
3: It is certainly uh, lifting public consumption spending. That is the way that that, that they are counting uh, public consumption. They are including those sorts of programs like the NDIS in that. And so it has really um, helped to lift public spending and has been a big contributor to the increase in public consumption spending over the past couple of years. And because the rollout still has a little way to go. And in fact, I think they're actually behind in terms of the rollout. It'll continue to be a stimulus for public spending over the next couple of years.
0: Just on the unemployment rate, it obviously fell to 5% last week. Do you think it's going to keep going or stick around 5% for a while?
3: Look, that was a big drop, 53 to 5%. I mean, it's really encouraging news. It really suggests that the unemployment rate continues to be on a downtrend. I think there's a good chance it it hovers around this level for a little while we might get a tick back up next month, but I think that the direction is down. So we're likely to see um, you know a, a number in the fours a bit earlier than what we previously expected. And I think that's pretty important for the RBA. They are actually in their latest forecasts have the unemployment rate at 5. 5% by the end of the year. So they will be quite encouraged, I think, by the good performance in the labour market. And that suggests that they'll have to be cutting their forecast for unemployment in the next round of uh, forecast revisions in early November.
0: Will that encourage you to bring forward your expectation of when rates will start to go up?
3: Yeah, I think that's the key question, really. I think don't think it will flow through into. Higher wages growth and higher inflation too quickly. I mean, this is something we've seen really around the world that um, it, unemployment has had to get really much lower than sort of trend rates, than the non accelerating inflation rate. And I think that that's what we'll see have to see here before we see a material increase in wages and inflation pressure. So I think that while it's encouraging and it's very good news, I can't see that it's going to bring forward um uh, expectations around uh, RBA rate hikes. I mean, they've obviously got a few other complications at the moment around weakening house prices. Uh, high petrol prices, the global environment looking increasingly uncertain. So I think that the RBA is probably likely to still wait until the second half of nineteen before they start increasing interest rates.
0: Obviously, the market, the stock market, is in the middle of a correction at the moment. Probably fair to say it's based around the US. But to what extent do you think what we're seeing in the stock market is an economic phenomenon?
4: Yes,
3: I think the the stock market's been interesting because we're seeing in the U.S. where where the weakness is very much concentrated, as well as China, obviously. Um, earnings growth has have actually been quite good, but there's obviously some concern that we're perhaps at the peak now of earnings growth. You know, you've got the the Fed uh, hiking rates and suggesting they're going to continue to hike rates. You've got, as I mentioned before, quite a lot of international uncertainty around. Brexit, the Italian budget, um, and obviously the US trade tension. So uh, it's difficult to see how that will play out. I think for the US, though, the economic outlook remains really still quite positive. Um, there's talk of further tax cuts um, coming through, and I think that, that all those things uh, should support growth in the US. We've got consumer confidence still very high, um, investment plans still looking solid. So the outlook for the economy is still quite good there, and that's why the, the Fed's thinking it will continue to hike. So, I mean, it's something that we need to watch given the potential for sentiment to drive further falls. But at this stage, the fundamentals still look pretty positive for the U.S. economy and the stock market.
0: Mm. Thanks very much, Felicity. Have a great day.
3: All right. Thanks, Alan. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting.
0: And now to talk about a very fraught time in Australian politics, here's Michael Packey, the National Political Editor for Macquarie Media. A lot going on at the moment, Michael. How are you seeing things?
1: Well, look, uh, there is a lot going on at the moment, uh, Alan, and uh, I suppose what will be interesting is when Parliament sits again The next time around, which will be in November this week, the government has gotten through it, even though it's still running in in a minority fashion in the sense that uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, you know, is not around and there's been no declared candidate uh, for uh, that seat of Wentworth by the Australian Electoral Commission. That's expected to happen by the end of next week. And I think we all know that the independent Karen Phelps will uh, be making her way uh, to Canberra. And I think that that's when Labor is going to probably start testing uh, the government's numbers on the uh, floor with a, you know, probably a no-confidence motion of some sort. Uh, and uh, that sort of thing will start happening. But I don't think it will start happening until Parliament sits again in November when people like uh, Dr Phelps are fully ensconced as uh, the local member for uh, Wentworth. That's where I think that the government could start facing some trouble.
0: But she said she won't support a no-confidence motion. That'd be a waste. They ought to be putting up motions that she might support.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she has said that she doesn't want to create any uh, distractions, uh, unnecessary distractions uh, for the government. But I suppose it'll become down to what sort of motions start getting put up by Labor. I wouldn't be surprised that uh, in November that Labor is going to make another play for Peter Dutton and uh, start testing on whether or not he should be referred to the High Court uh, over his eligibility to be actually sitting in Parliament. I think that that's uh, one uh, stunt that uh, Labor is going to pull in November. And then I suppose for the government, it'll be whether or not it gets enough votes to make sure that procedural uh, motions and procedural votes get over the line. Because as we know, even though the government may now not uh, introduce any uh, radical legislation between now and the next federal election, because it obviously doesn't see there being any need uh, in doing that, uh, it's whether or not it wins some of those procedural uh, votes on the floor of Parliament. And uh, if it starts not winning those votes, it's you know there's going to be a perception. let's put it that way, Alan. There'll be a perception of a uh, chaos, even though uh, the votes that uh, uh, that are being missed are, are very minor.
0: More fundamentally, it seems to me the two the two big policy areas that came out of the Wentworth by-election yeah. were firstly electricity or you know climate mm. change, and secondly mm-hmm. Nauru. And what gets me is that we actually do take a lot of refugees in Australia, as I think um, Mm. the immigration minister said the other day, that, you know, we're among the highest in the world, if not the Mm. second highest, particularly per capita, in terms of refugee intake. And also, we are meeting our uh, obligations on emissions reduction. But the thing is, the thing is that the government has managed to ensure that it doesn't get credit for any of that. And it just seems well, amazing to me that despite the fact that we're actually doing okay on both refugees and climate change, the government's uh, a big loser on those subjects.
1: Well, that's what it would seem like, uh, Alan. Um, I suppose you're right. Um, there's people with uh, in that seat of Wentworth that do want to see some more action on those uh, areas. Now, let's start with climate change. I mean, with climate change, I suppose the thinking is, that uh, not enough has been done for Australia to reduce its emissions. But the government says it will meet its uh, Paris uh, targets well and truly. And there's some dispute over whether that actually is uh, the case. And obviously, the other issue that seems to be uh, creeping up is, uh, uh, is is the government uh, still committed to coal-fired power? Now, the government says that uh, if there's the opportunity to invest in uh, coal-fired power, it would consider... Underwriting uh, some sort of coal-fired power station, but it, you know, that that uh, the business case for that still is yet to be made, and there's a lot of uh, uh, businesses that are also not interested in investing in coal-fired power uh, as well. But I suppose it's whether or not people believe that uh, Australia will uh, meet its uh, Paris uh, targets. That's that's the first thing. The government says they will. There's some climate uh, economists or climate analysts that say that we won't. And on the issue of uh, refugees, you're right, the government does say that we accept more than our intake of uh, refugees. But I suppose uh, when it comes to Nauru and Manus, there are children on those uh, islands, especially in in Nauru, and uh, who uh, doctors are coming out saying uh, that they're not being looked after, that they need more uh, medical attention. Well, what the government is saying is that these kids are receiving medical attention. There are doctors on these islands. And uh, those that are very sick are being transported back to Australia. Uh, I suppose it's a balancing act for the government as well because uh, the government doesn't want to send the message that if it transports people back to Australia, that could give a, send a signal to uh, people smugglers uh, that uh, the policy is starting uh, to uh, soften. So it is this balancing act that the government is trying to uh, straddle here. And uh, obviously, uh, no one wants to see... Uh, children sick. And obviously, the government doesn't want to see children die uh, on Nauru either. So it, it is a very uh, a difficult policy area that the government is trying to straddle on this issue of uh, asylum seekers.
0: Yeah, it is. Not, not doing too well at it, it seems to me. We're in for an interesting uh, few months, I guess, until, in fact, right up until the election. When do you think the election's going to be?
1: Well, see, I'm starting to wonder whether or not the election uh, will be called uh, for May. I'm wondering whether or not uh, Scott Morrison may decide to uh, go earlier. And I think a lot of it is going to depend on, Alan, how they handle uh, votes in Parliament. If Labor continues creating chaos, let's say in November and December. So there's only a couple of sittings left this year, Alan. And so I'm not sure that they want to go into next year with um, maybe let's say another two or three weeks of sitting, but Labor is gonna take every opportunity to try and uh, paint the government as being chaotic. So I'm actually wondering whether or not Scott Morrison might make the calculation that potentially the coalition is gonna lose this election anyway, but it may be better to go earlier rather than later so uh, they can avoid sitting in parliament and Labor playing games and stunts in parliament. I'm not sure, but at this stage, my understanding is we need to be at the polls in May. I'm wondering whether we'll actually be at the polls in March before the New South Wales state election.
0: Very interesting. Okay, thanks, Michael.
1: No problem. Thanks, Alan.
0: And here's Steve Sammartino, author and futurist, to tell us what's going on with cryptocurrencies lately. Well, Steve, there's a bit of action in the cryptocurrency world, in particular with stable coins and in particular with Tether, which has crashed, then it recovered a bit. So I just wonder, is there something worth discussing here? Is, it, is there something interesting going on?
4: I think so. I actually think that we have to start thinking about currency as a technology. And the reason that we don't think that is that currencies, unlike other technologies, don't change that quickly. I mean, if we think back... To you know, the age of discovery, we had bills of exchange. During the Iron Age, we had Ferris coins. And in the Industrial Revolution, we had fiat currency. But the thing about stablecoins that I think is interesting, and even though we've had tether with the crash, we had a, an interesting one uh, launched last night. Coinbase, the world's biggest crypto exchange, put on a USDC, which is an ERC20 token. And that has a 1.1 USD holding ratio, which means it's 100% collateralized. If you buy into that coin you have at your call anytime the amount of that of that that comes back so you can trade out back into the amount of money that you put in and for me that's really interesting because i think it's inevitable that governments around the world like australia will will eventually have the auc the australian crypto or the usc and stable coins give us that ability with the collateralization to have the potentially to be backed by Fiat in the way that in the past Fiat was backed by gold, right? It's almost like this next level in, in the evolution and it's an important evolution to enable us to move to crypto and crypto is really important because everything that we buy online at the moment, everything's tracked but we need you know, a level of anonymity if we're buying milk or if we want to maintain our privacy or certain transactions want to happen and it also makes it a lot more fluid for the government if they have a crypto to do quantitative easing or you know to inject money into the economy. They can do it much more quickly and potentially go straight to consumers where they put money out rather than going through uh, bank, uh, reserve bank ratio debt. So I think this is really important. And even though some of the stable coins, they trade at below or below what their, their stability uh, collateralized ratio is. I actually think that this is going to be the move towards crypto and the, the little bit that we need in crypto to get that semblance that we can move beyond fiat into a digital type currency around the world with global governments. What is the use of what
0: Coinbase released last night? That is to say, a coin backed by US dollars. What can you do with that that you can't do with US dollars themselves?
4: Well, the, the thing that you can do is that you can trade anonymously. If we, it's it's the, basically the same stuff that you can do with any form of uh, cryptocurrency, but you've got the confidence that it's backed by a fiat, which none of the other currencies have. They're just they're just based on pure confidence in the crypto market. So it has all of the benefits that you have. With a normal cryptocurrency, in that you can trade anonymously, uh, you can add smart contracts to the trading of the dollars, which is one of the core core elements of crypto. Certainly within Ethereum, where the money only changes hands once a task has been done or a good has been delivered. So that smart contracting element and the ability to trade anonymous, anonymously and and costlessly across the globe with very very low costs is an important element. So I think it's those general benefits that you get from a crypto uh, with the added uh, backing of the fiat currency is what gives an advantage. Of course, the on-ramps and, on-ramps and off-ramps mean that you won't have full anonymity. But once you're in that market and trading with it, you get the benefits of crypto with the security of fiat. I suppose you only
0: get you only don't have anonymity because you have to deal with a bank with uh, crypto. That's right. With, it's, uh, yeah, exactly. Absolute, with normal currencies, although if you're dealing in cash, you know you've got a suitcase full of notes. You can that's that's quite anonymous.
4: Yeah, well, you know, the thing is so people forget you know, a suitcase full of notes, you, you can be anonymous with crypto. Basically, you, someone um, turns up with goods, let's say, and then put crypto straight into your account based on that. So you can still get the anonymity. It's just what they call the on-ramp and the off-ramp. So if you go in and buy you know, 100000 worth of a, a stable coin, people know that 100000 went in there. And when you bring it back out into your fiat currency, they know how much came in and out, but they don't know what happens once you're in there. And if you stay in the crypto market and buy and sell things in the crypto market, then it's, uh, it's completely uh, anonymized uh, through that process. So it's really just about where you get in and out is, is, is the key element. That's going to facilitate illegal activity, you would think. Well, just like cash, you would think that fiat currency uh, uh, facilitates all the illegal activity at the moment. So I don't think there'll be any increase in illegal activity or decrease. It's ostensibly the same as what you can do with cash right now, which, of course, is government backed. So you know the idea that crypto is really just there for a, for illegal a activity I think is it's, it's a little bit thin in terms of yeah you know, how most cash is used but um, the important thing is the reduced cost and the ability to send money uh, around the globe in a global economy and the ability to attach smart contracts to the money so that the money doesn't change hands until such time that certain elements of a contract are executed against that that for me is is the really the core benefit. Of, of crypto and something that I think you know, large corporations understand through blockchain technology will, will be a valuable asset, especially with global corporations that have money changing through banks and you know an inordinate amount of money. Uh, you know, really comes out of that process just for the privilege of using someone else's pipes to change money and to have you know ones and zeros which come at zero marginal cost appear on different computers around the world.
0: Good on you, Steve. Thanks very much.
4: Pleasure. Cheers, Alan.
0: And happy birthday, Niccolò Paganini, born on Saturday back in 1782. And I think he was the 18th century Eric Clapton, of course, on the violin, not the guitar. And here's his Caprice number 24. That's all from me. Have a great week.